How do we want to start this? Well, let's start with the background. Who are you guys? Tell us about yourself, where you're from, what do you do? Okay. Uh, my name is Nick Wiltsey. I'm a public defender at the Legal Aid Society in New York City. I graduated from Columbia Law School six, seven years ago, somewhere around there. And I've been working at the Legal Aid Society since. I'm originally from Jamestown, New York, so south of Buffalo, you know, in this general western New York area. And I've, since I went to law school in New York, I've been living in New York City ever since, though since January, Katie and I now live in Connecticut. Um, undergrad in the city, too? Uh, no, undergrad in Buffalo okay. at Canisius College. That's where Katie and I met. Hello, I'm Katie Wiltsey, formerly Johnson. Um, I am from Fairport, um, and I was a teacher for four years, got my master's in education, um, and decided that I wanted to do social work um, for a variety of reasons, but went to school to get my MSW. Um, so I went to Hunter College um, in New York City for my MSW, graduated in 2020. Um, part of my internship was at a public defender office. Um, so I really liked that kind of work. And so after graduating with my MSW, I um, got a job, a few jobs, but now I currently work also at the Legal Aid Society in Manhattan as a forensic social worker. What's a forensic social worker? So forensic is, you know, our term of like social work, like social work in the court system. Um, so the way in which we conduct interviews and talk to clients is in a way that's kind of based on, um, you know, their experience with the criminal justice system. Um, so it just means that we have like a certification or, a, a, you know, a way to ask questions. Yeah. So what you do and what and Nick, you guys kind of um, work, not work together in the specific case, but your program and his office work together. together yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, and Nick can talk more about kind of how, um, you know, the way a case gets brought to him. And then I can talk about how a social worker gets brought in. But, you know, we do the same we work in the same office, just different boroughs in New York City. Gotcha. Um, so I work with his colleagues in Manhattan. He works with the social workers in Brooklyn. Um, we just have different boroughs, yeah. yeah. Oh, what type of cases are you generally handling right now, Nick? It could be anything. So um, we take all cases, everything from the lowest level misdemeanors all the way up to the only thing I don't do is homicide cases because we have a special bureau of very senior attorneys that handle those. But other than that, I take absolutely anything. Now that I'm uh, what we call fully certified, which means we can take the highest level felony cases, I try to not take as many misdemeanors just because I did a lot of those when I first started and the more serious cases are more interesting and more to um, the level of work I'm doing right now. But my, my caseload includes everything. It includes misdemeanors. It includes violent felonies, drug felonies, the really the whole gamut. And just tell us a little how your how is it broken up your office? And it's not the public defender's office. It's the legal aid office. Yeah. So it's um, New York City. I guess I'll back up. Most cities have an office of the public defender, or at the county level, perhaps. Like I know Rochester right. is Monroe County public defender. New York City doesn't do that. The public defenders are not city or any sort of government employees. Instead, New York City uses a contract system to award its public defender work. Once upon a time, there was just one public defender, the Legal Aid Society, which had almost the entire contract, except for a few small exceptions. For all five boroughs. For all five boroughs. 
the long story short is during the Giuliani administration, the public defender union went on strike. In order to break the strike, uh, Giuliani opened up several competing public defender offices across the city. So almost every borough has an alternative public defender provider that sort of competes is the wrong word, but initially that's what it was. It was a competing non-union law firm that essentially forced, ended the strike because there was just now an alternative provider. Uh, That was really uh, sort of considered like uh, dark days of public defense in the city because this strong union public defender office had seen their strike broken by non-union workers. However, we've come a long way since then and almost and possibly all, I I don't want to say all for certain, but it's close to all of the public defender agencies in the city have since unionized under our union. So everyone's part of the same union. But And I think you like don't have, uh, you know, you don't fight against like Brooklyn defenders or Bronx defenders, you know, like you work together, I think, essentially, it's not like you're competing for clients or cases or funding. Well, well, it's, I think at the administrative level, there might be, there's certainly a sense of competing and like, it's, it's a contract that they're bidding on. So like the head of the legal aid society is bidding on a contract to try to get X number of cases or X percentage of the case load in any given borough against the head of Brooklyn defenders. But at the staff attorney level, there's certainly no bad blood. And as I said, we're all part of the same union. But in terms of our office and the organization, it's the Legal Aid Society of New York City. It does, it's the uh, considered the oldest public defense firm in America. And we really do everything. Uh, criminal defense is the primary focus, and that's what Katie and I work in. But there's also immigration, civil, housing, a full gamut of juvenile rights, yeah, legal services for. Um, for people that can't afford attorneys. And then within the criminal defense practice, which is where we work, it's divided up into a separate office for all five boroughs. I work in the Brooklyn office and Katie works in the Manhattan office. What made you want to become a public defender? So I went into law school knowing I wanted to do something in sort of the public interest realm. So that being something that works and helps people as opposed to say corporate law where I would just make as much money as possible. I tried a public defense internship my first summer of law school and really liked it and kept interning at them, kept liking them, and it just ended up being a really natural fit for me. The work style works well for me. It's meaningful work that I really believe in, and that's it, it's really sort of the, the perfect fit for me in terms of work style, meaningful work, getting enjoyment out of it, et cetera. How about you? So when he went to law school, I had I didn't know what a public defender was. So um, my uncle is a lawyer, and he's a criminal defense attorney. Yeah, here. Yes, yeah, Rochester. Chris Johnson, yep. uh, my uncle. Um, I thought that criminal defense and public defense were, like, intertwined. I really did. And, I mean, a lot of public defenders are criminal defense attorneys, mm-hmm. but it's they're not the same, right? And so I was like, oh, Uncle Chris, like, Nick wants to be what you are. And Nick's like, no, no, no. Like, here's what a public defender is, and here's what I want to do. And so I really didn't know what it was um, until Nick introduced me to, like, the realm of, you know, the criminal justice system. Um, and just hearing his stories, like, I was a teacher when he started, and I was like, wow, you know, it's, like, really meaningful work and it's really important. Um, and the, when I got into social work, I interned at one of the alternative provider public defense in Brooklyn in family court. And so I was a social work intern there and worked with folks that are going through family court proceedings and really the worst times of their lives. And I really enjoyed being a support to them and their attorneys. Um, and so I was like, wow, I really like this work. Maybe I don't want to go back to teaching or even working with kids. 
Um, and so that's kind of what got me into the public defense world. Um, and I think that, yeah, I just really like the people it, the people that we work with, it's not easy work. And so to in order to work there, you have to rely on one another. And I feel like that kind of brings brought me to the table and has kept has kept me there. Well, um, yeah. What are some of the responsibilities that you have? Like what bring me through what you do yeah. when you are assigned to a case? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I want to say that like social workers working with attorneys are like it's not common. I think I'm used to it because in New York City, every public defender office has social workers and like that's common. Um, and there's like a lot of us. Um, so in an office, yeah. you're Manhattan, you said? Yeah. How many attorneys and how many social workers? There's 15 social workers. I'd say over 100. Probably somewhere in the 100, 150-ish uh, range of attorneys per borough. Yeah. And 15, I think, is pretty average social workers. Um, and this, that's just criminal defense. So what's your caseload? How many cases can you have at a time? Since I started in January, I only have about like 28 clients. Um, you know, and some of them are like, and I'll talk about that, but some of them are like quick, like quick things I need to do, but some are like longer term. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, and some come back, like some are like good and then are not good. Yeah. Um, but my colleagues have like 50 to 60 clients. So you have 150 lawyers. They have thousands of cases. Yes. How some cases get social workers, some don't. Most yeah. don't. Yeah, how, tell most us don't. So exactly. How do you get brought into a case? Yeah, yeah. So, um, in you know the path of a case, and it can talk about. But um, when a, an attorney deems it appropriate, either in the beginning at arraignments or anywhere down the line, like we can get brought in wherever and whenever, um, they will put a request in for a social worker for what a myriad of reasons. Um, like a quick fix, like I mentioned, they can put a request in to get a client referrals for medication management, outpatient programming, mental health treatment, housing referrals. Like anything that's kind of like case management we can help with that, you know, these attorneys just don't have, one, the experience or time to, to handle. Um, and then, two, kind of the big crux of why we get brought in is to help um, provide mitigating factors for the attorneys to provide the DA or the judge to try to get a better sentence. What do you mean mitigating factors? Yeah. Describe that for me. So, like, here's a client that um, has – and I, I'll give you an example. Um, I had a client who – has his first arrest, he's 29, first arrest, um, he allegedly shot a gun into the air five times while drunk. First arrest, first time holding a gun, really like fucked, excuse me, fucked up his life, you know? <laughs> um, and and what what I did- it's our best podcast ever. Yeah. Immediately. <laughs> <laughs> um, what I did was the attorney brought me in because like gun cases are really hot right now, right? And so he could get, you know, three and a half to 15 if convicted. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll just jump in and say in, in New York State, for those that don't know, just possessing a gun, yeah. the minimum sentence if convicted is three and a half years and a maximum is 15. And that's for someone, their first arrest, no record whatsoever. Uh, the, the DA might as sort of standard offer in the city, at least from the DA, is two years prison. Two plus two. Yes, two uh, plus two. Yeah, two, so two years prison, two years post-release supervision or parole, as people would more colloquially call it. So it's, it's, it's very serious, just possessing a gun at all. And this client that you're talking about allegedly shot the gun into the air as well. So it's, it's a very serious case with this person facing extraordinary consequences. Yeah, shooting well, guns in the air in New York City. It's not like shooting them on a farm. Or like Exactly. Or There's people around, like, you know, it, and putting they it have up to in come, the air. They have to come like down. Russian roulette. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They have to come down. Um, and so 
you know, like it's serious. And so the attorney brought me in and this is what a lot of we do is we interview the client and we have extensive interviews, either if the client's at Rikers um, or if they're out in the community, we have extensive interviews and we go through like really all parts of their lives um, from birth. You know, was your birth normal? How was your family, childhood, education, jobs, mental health, drugs, um, neighborhood, you know, violence, trauma. We go through everything to try to figure out, you know, why, so sorry, what led them to this spot in their moment in their life and, you know, why this is an aberration from like 29 years of never getting arrested, you know? So I supported, I wrote a letter. Usually it's like five or six pages of like documents of like, you know, this person is not this arrest. They are a person with trauma and, you know, a lived experience of like violence. And that's why, or like, you know, poverty has led them here. So I interviewed the client, wrote a report, um, and hopefully it'll work out. I'm not sure. We're still in the process. Do you go in person or you just submit the report? Do you go to court? Both. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. So I go to the court. I go to court to support clients. Um, but we also, social workers, offer oral advocacy in court if the attorney needs it. Um, you know, as trained, licensed social workers, everyone on staff is a licensed social worker where, you know, we have experience. So we provide, you know, our expertise because attorneys aren't social workers for a reason. <laughs> um, and so we do oral advocacy if needed, but a lot of it's like written advocacy, all these like mitigation points. Um, so that's kind of like the crux. That's why we get brought in a lot is to like help support the client to try to get a better deal or a better sentence if they're facing time regardless. Yeah, it's something we talk about here with, I talk about some of the people that work here. and All lawyers can go in there and we can all talk, right? Every, yeah. Everybody who's a trial lawyer, you yeah. can go in there and talk and judges hear a lot of people talking all yeah. day every day but what can you prove mm -hmm. the stuff that's on the paper that's proof yeah here's the here's their yeah tax returns here's their pay stubs here's their marriage certificate mm -hmm. this is proof it the and i'm just in support of the written aspect yeah. as opposed to lawyers who 100 percent rely on their ability to talk well judges get really good at tuning at that talk yeah, out. Yeah, absolutely. They, they, and they can't say no to like that proof that you, you provide them. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of, and Nick can talk about his experience working with social workers, but our writing is supposed to be meant to be persuasive um, to try to humanize the client. You know, they're not just this docket or this arrest or, you know, this booking and casing number. They are this person that, you know, we're trying to, I don't know, garner sympathy. Um, but we just humanize the client for yeah. in the eyes of the DA or the right. judge. Well, and that's what we talk about too, right? Like humanizing our clients is part of. This is the one of the things we say: Is this a good guy who did something stupid, or is this an evil son of a gun? And yeah, that's uh, and, and usually it's somebody who did something stupid. Yeah. That's been my experience. Yeah. I don't know about your yeah, experience. and um, sort of the I, I guess the question someone might ask is like, why social workers? And certainly at law firms or public defender offices where they don't have social workers. It's not like there's no mitigation. It's the attorneys are doing this, but they're not necessarily as well equipped and well situated to do these things. So um, the, the example Katie gave is sort of a unicorn in terms of like the, the, the client that has a clean record and does one stupid thing. Like that's 1% of our clients. Uh, I think when I think of sort of the stereotypical case that I'm going to refer to a social worker, imagine maybe someone that has you know, 20 convictions on their rap sheet and a lot of them are for drug, alcohol, uh, theft hey, cases, yeah. things like that. And what the social worker can bring is sort of the deep dive the why. clinical analysis into the client's life 
about um, why are they doing this? What went wrong in their life? What, what is the trigger for why this keeps happening? Mm-hmm. And it's one thing for me, an attorney, to say, I, as this person's attorney, who am clearly very, very biased and want the best <laughs> outcome for my client, well, you're, you're think that this legally cl- ob- or right. ethically obligated to, to do, do that. that. Yeah, right. exactly. And, and, and the, uh, a social worker working in a public defender office has the same ethical obligation, but I, I think it still looks different when instead of an attorney saying something, a social worker with LMSW after their name is saying, Clinically speaking. In my clinical opinion, this person suffers from severe addiction and co-occurring mental health disorders. Or is using because of pain, like because they're... Pain management. Yeah, yes, pain management. Exactly. Self-medicating. Sorry, Nick. Yeah, just that I, I think what a social worker can say is that in my opinion as a clinician, this person is suffering from this. And if you don't want to see them keep coming back through the system after serving a year in jail... Instead, they need intensive inpatient mental health treatment, substance abuse treatment. And that's sort of, in my opinion, the, the best spot for a social worker when we're talking about not just mitigation, but when a social worker can say, here's the problem and here's how we can solve it. What's your opinion on working with social workers? Because I'm assuming sometimes there's probably a contrast once in a while. I mean, you want to lead your case in a certain way. Maybe they're giving you information that isn't necessarily helpful helpful or mm-hmm. not the way that you wanted it to go? Mm-hmm. Like, what would you... So, so social workers and attorneys are trained differently. They think differently. They bring different approaches to the case. That doesn't necessarily mean there's conflict. Um, I think sometimes for social workers that haven't worked in a law firm setting before, it can be a struggle when, say, um, my goal and the goal of the office and therefore the goal of the social worker is to do what the client wants that's going to help beat this specific case. And maybe what that means is, you know, doing a program that won't necessarily help the client's life, but is going to be what the DA wants to fulfill the case to get X outcome. And for some social workers, that can be hard when they're sitting here saying, but I as a clinician know that this client really, really needs anger management because they have like some serious anger management issues and I'm afraid that he's going to go hit someone. And I as an attorney can be saying, well, we're not going to tell anyone that because attorney-client privilege and that's not the best interest for our client. And uh, I think Katie can talk more about this, but it's being a social worker in a public defender office brings the entire penumbra of attorney-client privilege, duty to the client and whatnot that really, frankly, they conflict with a lot of social work ethics and don't Conflict is the wrong word. They trump the social work ethics because at the end of the day, you're working in a law firm. So the legal lawyer ethics are what sort of control. Yeah, I think that like... Like you're not you're not a mandated reporter. I'm not. No, I'm not. Um, because of the comp, like the privilege that I have. It's like a triad, the client, the attorney, and me. Um, but I think that like, yeah, your ethics, you have a duty to your client. We have social work ethics that we also have to abide by and at the same time work at a law firm, which can be confusing sometimes like so are you actually working in, in that scenario so I'm a I'm a lawyer right mm-hmm. now but I'm not always working as a lawyer I'm not yeah. a lawyer when I'm mowing my lawn oh like, yeah so you, are you actually not working I mean it seems mentally exhausting to try to figure out you have ethics here and ethics yeah. here and they conflict, conflict but this one trumps well what does your board think about that yeah um I think knowing that they you know we fall underneath the law firm, it's okay. Like, because we're not mandated reporters, like, of 
you know, I think that it's 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 a weird spot to be in. Um, you know, like if someone's gonna say to Nick, if like Nick and I are working on a team with a client, and they say like, oh, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna do this to this person. Like we, ha- I have as a social worker duty to warn, duty to warn that person, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that someone's gonna hurt. Um, but then I also have to respect, like, I don't know, what do you think of that? Like the client is like, our client. Like right? if a client told you that, you couldn't tell anyone, right? Because you're working as part of a law firm yeah. and there's an attorney-client privilege. Yeah. Like, it would, you know, legal aid society would get in a lot of trouble if you started going and, you know, now there's certain exceptions, like about duty to warn and yeah, I mean, imminent we, harm. We, we don't need to get into the full yeah. but law I also, ethics here, but like, you know, if someone told you that they abused their child, you know, you can't go tell ACS about that. Right, right. I'm not a mandated reporter. And I think that, like, I don't, I actually don't know if I, I know that lawyers can lose their license and like, you know, get disbarred. Um, I don't know of the process for like, because I am a licensed social worker, I don't know the process for like, if I don't listen to my ethics um, or like, if I don't do this, I, if I can get unlicensed. Right. Um, but I think that, I think we like fall under the safety net of the the law firm. Um, okay. Do you, uh, so the DA's office has social workers too? Yes, yeah. Do you have any crossover with, with them? You know what? Um, sometimes when clients, and I know that Nick can probably talk just because he's been at legal aid longer than I, um, I think that when we have clients that take programming through the DA's office, like as a you know a form of alternative sentencing than being incarcerated, I think sometimes they do programs with social workers at the DA's office, like in their services, right? Um, but I don't usually communicate with them. I And I rarely communicate with DAs. Obviously, the attorneys communicate with the DAs. So that's where Greg and I started at the DA's office. Oh, yeah. Okay. And we had victim advocates who oh, were yes. social workers. Okay, yeah. And I know how I would bring in Julia, who actually worked here for a period of time. Oh, and she's, cool. She became a probation officer afterwards. And I didn't want to do any cases while Julia. Yeah. She, she was my, like, translator. Yeah, yeah. I'm on the case, Julia's on the case. Yeah. And you get very reliant on the social worker skills. Yes. And it's it's not exactly the same skill set that you're talking about, but yeah. I get the yeah um, the benefit, really. Yeah. But in all in all, it's probably a helpful program in the end. There's obviously a reason for it yes. and helpful yeah. in helping the person in the moment when yes. they need it. Yes. Which is kind of interesting because it's almost like, is it something that could be put into like the private sector or yeah. different areas of law that yeah. isn't just criminal, like personal injury. Oh. If you think about it, people get injured all the time and it's life changing. Yes. And you think in that moment, yes. they really could probably use a support person Absolutely. to help get their life in order. Yeah. And we talk about the client experience for mm-hmm. us. So people choose us and, and as an attorney, you're really focused on getting that outcome. That's, yeah. that's what we're trained to do. You go to law school to get an outcome. And from day one, you're asking questions and thinking of your strategy and making a plan to get an outcome. Mm-hmm. And then you get at this really great outcome and the person looks at you and says, did we do a good job? Yeah. Uh, is that good or bad? Yeah. And, and they're not always happy. Well, yeah. Why is that? Because they haven't been educated. And like, yeah. what, what can we do? And I think some of the same skills that you're talking mm-hmm. about are things that we're trying to implement. We don't have a social worker, but it's things that we consider yeah. for... Um, the clients here. And yeah, and I, I think that's like the person is the case, right? Despite if it's like an indigent person or a person that can pay for a, an attorney, the person is going through this case, whether that's civil or criminal, and they have a whole life outside of the case or a lack of support. Right. And I think that, you know, um, I think 
social workers could, I mean, it's so easy for me to think that it, of reasons why it should be. And I, I really think that it's not well known that like the, you know, the amount of support social workers can offer clients going through any kind of case. Um, but I think, you know, someone that can afford a lawyer might have a drug addiction or might be struggling with trauma. And, you know, I think what you said, Bob, like, uh, you know, attorneys have tunnel vision for the case as they should. Like, I'm, I'm not going to go up there and try to be a lawyer. Um, but I think that having like the more wide lens of a social worker is super helpful in context to give, you know, give the attorney context, but also just support the client um, before and after the process, because, you know, if they win, okay, but if they don't have housing, what's that going to do? You're, they're going to be put back, right back into the court, you know? Well, it, it took like a lot of years for me to understand that. And we're start the law firm, young lawyer, mm -hmm. super aggressive, and we're getting these great results. And the yeah. people are not always like thrilled. I'm yeah. like, we're, we're killing it yeah. here. We're winning. We're, we're like, <laughs> our results are incredible. Why aren't these people happier? Yeah. Because you're not explaining anything. Yeah. You're, you're not telling them what's going on and why yeah. it's good and what we're shooting yeah. for and all that stuff. We're just like, Head down, win, I'm, win, going, win, to get, win, I'm win. going to get my result. Right, yeah. So, you know, after five or ten years of people being disappointed, we yeah. got smarter, I hope. Yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. Well, and I think that's, like, that's to your benefit. Like, I think Nick has, like, similar, and he could probably talk about this, but, like, you compartmentalize so much to try to win that case, which, like, makes you great trial attorneys, and which makes me a good social worker is that like, I don't care. I mean, I obviously want the client to win, but I like care about the whole person. I right. care about their environment right. and their context. Well, and that's what we try and do here yeah. is also get to know the person, yes. our clients as yeah. people, not just a case number, not just an outcome. Yes, exactly. So it's definitely a balance of yeah. and I think both worlds. Our firm's a little different. We have more people, we're bigger than a lot of the criminal defense firms, which are one one guy. That's yeah. what they are. The criminal defense firm is is, is that the guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is Chris Johnson. Right. <laughs> We're, we have several. We have Bree. We have Abby. We have Debbie. We have Sam. We have all the other people, and they're yeah. helping do Crystal. things. They're helping. <laughs> there's too many. <laughs> there's <laughs> plenty of people. That there's work a lot. Here. Of anyone else? I forgot. <laughs> yeah. uh, and they're picking up. They're not licensed social workers, yeah. but they're picking up the softer side, yeah. and they have a lot of access. Even at firms that have more staff, I think our firm, all of our people have a lot of access to our clients. Our yeah. clients know everybody that works here, yeah. and their team is three or four people. Everybody's working with three or four people. Yeah, and it, it makes all the difference to have just like you know another face you can call or another person you can talk to, whoever that may be. You know, like not yeah. just the attorney. Well, and Bree and I've been yeah. together for ten years, and she's like, "Hey, uh, come on." <laughs> that's my job yeah. hey hey come on let's go well, you're late yeah. you got somewhere to be go or you're not understanding what they're trying to say to you yeah like she's here and yeah. she's like the person saying they're saying this but what they really mean is this is the problem over here yeah right that right and that, they're calling and asking this question what they really want to know is you're working on their case yeah and yeah what's going to happen yeah and this other stuff and they yeah. don't really care you know, did you read the third page of the police report? Right, right. Yeah. Especially when they usually, I'm the first person that they talk to yeah. when they call in. And yeah. they explain more about the situation, I think, before I then give it to you. So I kind of have a background which Context. helps you understand, like, what this person really needs yeah. right and now. sometimes yeah. they're more comfortable talking to Brie about their family and their yeah. pet and their kids and yeah. thing. And they're, like, a little more intimidated by the attorney sometimes and right. she understands more of their family sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it helps that like people, we don't have like the training that they have, which I think is a benefit, you know, like we shouldn't have that and like yeah. 
they open up to us more. Mm -hmm. We gotta get yeah. some of these questions for Nick. Well, Nick's, Nick's, I was, oh, yeah, I was like her. trying I'm to so lead into this. <laughs> well, we got some really great questions here for Nick. I wanted to get to some of yeah, these. Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, my biggest thing is like we have pretty good resources to help us out, but that's not always the case when you're in a public defender's office. What are some obstacles that you have to go through to get a good outcome for your case or represent them efficiently? Okay. Well, I'm going to disagree with your premise. I think public defender offices, at least good ones, are better resourced than okay. a lot of private practices um, just because of our sheer size. And, you know, if I have a legal question, I could send an email to a thousand attorneys yeah. and get a response instantly. There's, you know, pages and pages of legal memos, motions, et cetera. I certainly think there's um, there can be advantages to hiring a private attorney versus having a public defender, but at least in my office, it's not for lack of resources. Do you have um, any what, what obstacles, your, though? What is your case, yeah. your caseload uh, yeah. generally? So, so it varies widely, and, you know, you can read horror stories of, like, people in the South that have caseloads of 200, 400 clients. Yeah, and that's, my, my, that's how it was here yeah. for a long, and, and that has been, I think, gotten better recently. Right. But in Monroe County, and I think that's where Bree's probably heard us, the public defenders who we went against, Huge caseloads, mm -hmm. yeah. enormous, yeah. Uh, many, many, many hundreds of clients. Right. Yeah. And, and mine's nothing like that. So when I first started, uh, I was only doing misdemeanors, so I think there's an ex expectation you're going to have more at that point. Uh, my caseload approached 100. I don't, I don't think it ever got over 100. Right now, it's, I just checked the other day, it's somewhere between 30 and 40. So it, it's not incredibly large. It, it is fel it's mostly felonies, so it's more serious, and these are more challenging, difficult cases, but it's not sort of like the overwhelming caseload that you imagine when you think of your stereotypical classic public defender system. Granted, New York City is better resourced than most places in America in terms of support for public defenders, how many we have, caseloads, et cetera. But I, I feel like I'm well supported to handle the amount of cases that I have personally. And that's, and that's what our criminal lawyers here are carrying, a very similar number here. I know when I was doing criminal defense, I thought I was good up to about 50 would be the max. Mm -hmm. In the 30s was really good, around 40, 42, depending on if you have five murders, that's a lot. But yeah. um, so that's really, really similar. And um, but, but there are obstacles. I think the, the number one would be that sort of the fundamental difference between any sort of appointed counsel. So this could be someone in a public defender office. This could be someone that's on a panel and just gets appointed by a judge versus a private lawyer is that the client didn't choose you. And I think that's it's a small detail, but it's very, very important. One way or another, be it a referral uh, or however else, every client you have here chose you to be their attorney and they made that conscious decision. And at any time, if they don't want you to be their attorney anymore, they could stop paying you and go hire someone else. Every client I have, meets me by me walking into a cell and saying, hi, my name's Nick, I'm going to be your attorney. And it's it's not like they, they're given five resumes and they get to say, I pick this one. That would be pretty cool, though. <laughs> it's like a menu. Um, yeah. Or, um, you know, it's uh, a lot of my clients are, a lot of my clients are people of color. They, and for those of you that are audio-only listeners, I'm white. Um, they don't get to say, well, I'd rather have an attorney that looks like me. It's just not an option they have. Granted, they if, if things are really not going well between me and a client, the client can always ask for a new attorney, and most judges will give someone at least one more shot at having a better relationship with a different attorney. 
But that's really a fundamental difference that can, it's a hard place to start an attorney-client relationship. Uh, when I meet all of my clients for the first time, they're in custody, they're, they're in a jail cell, and that's just a, a power dynamic that sort of sets the stage for the relationship, oftentimes very detrimentally from the very beginning. And there's conflict with my clients. Some of my clients don't like me. I think most of them come to like me by me getting them good results. That's really the best way that we can prove to our clients that we are good attorneys. We're not just the people that couldn't get real jobs as real lawyers, as some of them think. But I get it. Like The, the, the client has no reason to trust me just because I say I'm your attorney. Or you just like walked in the door. Yeah. yeah. You, have yeah. To build, you have to work harder to build that trust between you and the client. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. So, and, was I doing assignments when I started working with you? I don't remember. I don't. I don't think so. So I did assignments. I did. I was in private practice, but I took assignments like mm -hmm. a lot of lawyers that are starting out. And you know, exactly what you're saying. My experience: person who comes in and picks you and hires you and chooses to give you money, we're on great terms. Mm -hmm. The other guy, I'm the same lawyer. I, yeah. They come to the same office, yeah. do the same thing, and uh, the way I get treated is wildly different. Which is part of the reason I stopped doing it. Yeah. Yeah, and that's for me like part of the call to the work. Um, Aside from the fact that just personally, like, I don't want to be dealing with, like, money and running a business. Um, <laughs> um, that's just really not, why. <laughs> that's just not me. But, um, like, fundamentally, like, the person that doesn't get to pick his attorney should get just as good of a lawyer and just as good of a lawyer experience as the person who does. And that's really what sort of drives me. And like you said, some of our clients that, you know, we're chosen for – uh, don't treat us the best or are very angry with us or are very angry at the system and take it out on us because we're the one person that can't hurt them if they take out their anger on us. And I get it. And it's sort of one of the hardest parts about the job is to, you know, have a conversation on the phone with the client, have this client yell at you, scream at you, tell you how mad they are, tell you how you're not doing a good job, and then hang up the phone and then get to work on their case because that client despite how angry they are, despite how they might be taking their frustrations out on you, is still entitled to the very best representation that I can give them. Yeah, and I think I should explain to some of the people who don't know, Columbia Law School is a top-notch law school in the entire world. This is, uh, you're obviously highly intelligent, really good in undergrad, and had very, very high test scores to go there, and had incredible options. This is, for the people who don't live in the legal world that are they're listening, you had any options, so for you to sit here and say, this is my choice, this if, if you don't believe that, I, this was his choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I think, I, I know, um, I don't know if you asked or we're going to ask about misconceptions about public defenders, yeah. and I, I think one of them is, like I said, there's some people that think that, like, there's the people that, you know, are real lawyers and public defenders is sort of a fallback job. And that's just not the case. People uh, have asked Nick that. When are yeah. I'm not going to name who, but like, when are you going to become a real lawyer? Yeah, that's like, like a I terrible thing to say. I'm a too. real lawyer. Like right. You work yeah. really hard for, for each yeah. of your clients. And, and it's, it's I'm right. going to go hire a real lawyer. Right, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, like, yeah, I, I went to Columbia Law School, and I could have, you know, most of my peers walked out of law school without trying very hard into very lucrative, very well-paying jobs. That granted, they're working very hard, and I would never want to be in that sort of corporate environment. But that was an option I could have pursued. When I applied to work at the Legal Aid Society, there were about 1,000 applicants, and they hired 10 people. Wow. So it's a very competitive field. Now, granted, you know, if you're talking about going and being a public defender in the Deep South, maybe it's 
not such a sought out position because I said, you know, these are. Here's your 400 cases. Yeah, yeah. who wants to want (laughs) that? Right, right. I'm in a very good environment, and there's a reason that these are the jobs that aspiring public defenders want, but it's still, at least from my perspective, the best of the best that are getting these jobs, and they are good attorneys that are public defenders. Um, Is there any area of law, if you weren't a public defender, that interests you? Uh, I have a great... Campus June water cases. <laughs> That's why you go to law school. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I, how about I a could, side hustle? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What are you gonna do, Nick? <laughs> There's so one thing. You know, different people define public defense differently. Some people think it's just your standard. You're accused of a crime. You get a lawyer, and that's what I do. But in my opinion, people that do housing defense, so landlords trying to evict you, you get a lawyer. I, I consider that public defense or uh, family defense. ACS is trying to take a kid, your kids away, you get a lawyer. That would be my first like choice if I had to pursue a different career. Uh, yeah. you know, federal public defense or appellate defense I could do. This is all still in the realm of public defense. Are you admitted into federal court? No, I'm not. Okay. But um, th- those are the sort of things. I-, I think in terms of like if I were to think long terms about a next career, I might some day want to do federal defense because it's sort of more – higher level thinking, um, heavy on research and writing. and We do federal defense here. And yeah. I, I, I left state court and went to federal court. The first time I went there, I thought they were going to give me tea and a, and a <laughs> welfare or something. <laughs> like, like, where's all the people? What's like, going on? Oh, no, this is our only case today. We're going to yeah. do an arraignment, and then everybody's going to take a break till tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's very different. And But for now, I really like what I do, and I'm not looking to get out of it. You would um, like to... Um, be a professor at some point. Well, um, but you can do that, and yes. you could do both. You can well, practice yeah. law. Well, like Katie's hinting, I, I just uh, <laughs> accepted a position. I'm starting in oh. the end of this month as a adjunct professor back at Columbia Law School teaching a legal – It's the course is called Legal Practice Workshop. It's In practice, it's, really, it's the 1L legal writing class, but we also do, like, oral advocacy and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, congratulations. I know. Uh-huh. Sorry, I didn't want to say it. Oh. I wanted to like, hint, he should say it. <laughs> so uh, I'm not leaving practice. I'm keeping my day job, but this is just a once a week. He's just putting class. some elbow pads yeah. on. He tried my glasses on. We're yeah. going to take some first uh, day of school uh, pictures. Uh, <laughs> It'll be fun. But I'm excited for that. It'll be something different and change up my, you know, the same work environment that I've been in for six years now. And I can do something a little different. And who knows, maybe being in uh, the legal education realm will open up some new doors as well. Awesome. So every criminal defense lawyer has a case. They have a case that, like, means a lot to you personally, something that is next level that this is why you want to be a lawyer or the story that you want to tell. So tell us tell us one. Tell us one that is important to you. Well, I'll always remember, like, my first trial and – I feel like now, now you're going to coax me into like telling trial war stories. and <laughs> Classic <laughs> lawyer talk. But, um, uh, we can go. Yeah. <laughs> so, so my first trial, obviously we're talking about just misdemeanor level cases. And the, I think this is a good one because it's sort of emblematic of like how much just mere accusations can you know, disrupt someone's life. Uh, I had a client who was accused of menacing his neighbor. So menacing, for those that don't know, is... Uh, physical intimidation. So imagine like, you know, waving your fist at someone and threatening them or pulling out a knife and holding it up to them and his neighbor threatened him. So he's arrested. This is a neighbor, um, 
probably like a different floor in his building we're talking about. Uh, the first thing that happens is when he's arraigned, an order of protection is issued, so he can't be near this person, which means he's de facto evicted from his home and has to live somewhere else while the case is pending. Because it's his first arrest at age 30 and he, you know, he has no record and it's just a misdemeanor, the DA makes their standard offer, which is plead to a violation, you'll walk out of here without any criminal record, there'll just be a two-year order of protection. Most of my clients would accept that because they don't want to risk a criminal record. They don't want to risk possibility of jail time or a fine or owner's community service. And, of course, and you know, a violation plea isn't going to ruin anyone's life, but that two-year order of protection would have meant that he was excluded from his house for two years. Uh, this client was very adamant that he would not take that, order, that uh, plea, and the case got sort of hot-tracked for trial. During our investigation, we learned that the complaining witness was, um, I want to be delicate, but um, <laughs> mentally unwell. She uh, <laughs> was prone to make accusations against people. Uh, my investigator actually got her on a recording when my investigator called and interviewed her and recorded her. Um, she believed in like a full-blown conspiracy theory that my client and his family were actually paying the uh, post office, the post lady, et cetera, to steal her packages. And she really believed in this full-blown conspiracy theory. And it was just very clear this wasn't a reliable person. Uh, I brought this to the DA handling the case and his, you know, as um, he sort of shrugged and said, oh, well, I, I don't care. We have a cooperative complaining witness. We're going forward on this case. So the case went to trial and this uh, complaining witness, so, sorry, when I say complaining witness, that's uh, what we call alleged victim. We don't like to say victim because, like, I would say this person is not a victim. She was a person making a false accusation against my client. But um, it's the purpose of the trial. Find out if they were a victim. Exactly. Um, during my cross-examination, and, you know, I started crossing her on her fantasy, you know, her beliefs about conspiracy theories and my client and whatnot, she actually um, got so angry that she got up, said, I'm not answering his questions anymore, and stormed out of the courtroom. Oh. So uh, I, I now get to say for the rest of my career that my first ever trial, I crossed a witness into walking off the stand. <laughs> um, so what happened at that point? So um, it, it would have been a mistrial if she refused to get back on the stand because I didn't get a fair and full opportunity to cross her. But um, the, the DA got special permission to talk to her for the purpose of trying to get her back on the stand, which ordinarily isn't allowed. You're not allowed to talk to a witness in the middle of cross. Um, so the DA and his supervisor talked to her and convinced her to get back on the stand. Um, and then so my first question when she got back on the stand was, now you just had a conversation with the DA over here, and she denied it. And, nope, never talked to them, don't know who that is. And, Unreliable. Yeah, so it, it, it was an acquittal. The you got to yeah. sit down quick before the, the mistrial happens. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, come on. Um, so in, in the end, you know, as soon as she got done testifying, we d declined to call any of our witnesses. We rested, we closed, we won. Obviously, there's no way anyone could find him guilty based on this woman's testimony. And it's a great result. The client got to go back home, be back in his apartment. You know, he still has to deal with this woman who's his neighbor now. But it ended up being a good result for him. And as I said, for most people, for 95% of my clients, they would have taken that violation plea, not risk. You know, if we lost that trial, he'd have a criminal record the rest of his life. He could have gone to jail for up to a year. But instead, he uh, was willing to go to trial and push the limits of the court system and was able to walk away without any record whatsoever and with the feeling of knowing that he won the trial, he won the case, and he felt very 
you know, grateful for that. And, you know, that was a great start to my career. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. First trial. Check. One. Yeah, done. <laughs> yeah. Nick has great track record with trials. Yeah. But I've only seen him once, and it was so cool. Do you? What do you enjoy before. about being a trial attorney? Because I feel like not every attorney is necessarily made to be a trial attorney. Right. No, and most attorneys never set foot in a courtroom, but it's it's what I wanted to do. It's why I became a lawyer. I I feel like I'm pretty good at standing up and arguing on my feet. And it's Like what thrills you? What's your like, yes, I'm ready for this <laughs> yes. part? <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I think like back in when I was in like, college and I was doing mock trial it was thrilling uh, I, I don't know if it's thrilling so much now because it's there's nothing really more stressful than doing a trial you're talking about for however long this trial is going on you're just on constantly if you watch a trial on tv and you see you know hours of testimony and questions if there's one bad question that the da asks and I fail to object that could be ineffective assistance of counsel just missing that one question could be me really blowing the case individually so it's you're talking about a very high stressful environment of being on mentally for a very long period of time but it is still a rush and it's you know getting that when you hear when you when you win the case and the jury says not guilty it's just a sort of euphoric feeling that's hard to replicate but uh, all of that I, I like cross I like closing um, I I like the oral advocacy part of the job unfortunately it's not like you know, we're not doing trials every other week in most cases don't go to trial but when we do it's a, it's a really intense experience we were doing a trial with our favorite judge kitty mm-hmm. and we're, we're doing a trial with another lawyer we're in here working i think we we're in this room and we're way stressed out and she's like can you believe that this is uh, we're going to look back on this fondly someday which we do of <laughs> yeah. course yeah <laughs> yeah in the moment, doesn't see it that way. Yeah, doesn't yeah. always feel like it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you, either of you, have any questions for us? Um, no, I, I feel like um, what, I mean, I think that it's hard for Nick and I to conceptualize what the perception of public defender offices and what that looks like because, like, New York is so, like, resourced and, mm-hmm. like, has, like, so many um, public defender offices and support. But like what, I guess, like Monroe County Public Defender Office, what is your perception of, or what's your client's perception of working with the public defender offices? I, mean, I think it's exactly what Nick said, is we didn't pick this person. Yeah. If I could pick any lawyer, would I pick you? Yeah. Probably not. If I had a million dollars, would you be my attorney? Probably not. Yeah, right. Um, but the other part, I always think, any office, whether it's this office or your office or Monroe County Public Defender's office, there's some really good lawyers there. Yeah. There's some a lot of pretty good lawyers there, mm-hmm. and there's some not so good lawyers right. there. And like, you, who gets the bad one? The luck of the draw, <laughs> yeah. Someone does, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, well, it's about who you're comfortable with. So, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, if you start to realize that you have a public defender that yeah. you don't think they're doing a good job for yeah. you, you can always look for an attorney yes. and pay for it. Right. I mean, th- yeah. there's no wrong side. You yes. can't make a bad decision, I guess. Right. It's just what's best for you. Yeah. And it's... Like you said, there's good attorneys, you know, at, at every stage, you know, you could get a good attorney, a bad attorney. One of the harder things, and maybe this is something you two would be individually equipped to chime in on, is it's hard to, you know, I see people all the time that are paying a lot of money for very bad representation. And there's some people that, you know, have no qualms about the fact that they are paid lawyers, but I know and I can tell they're not good. And part of the problem is 
clients aren't necessarily well equipped to know who's a good lawyer and who's not other than sort of like soft skills about are they personal when I interview them? Do they give me time? Things like that. Um, I, I can't tell you the number of times that I've like had a client of mine hire a lawyer and then I call them to like explain the case and, the, and you know, I'm explaining legal concepts to them that like can beat this case and that they've never heard of. I'm like, oh God, this is, this is concerning, but that's the choice they made. And how do you go about sort of educating your clients on like, no, I am a good lawyer. And this is why yeah. when you know, it's similar to like when you're picking a doctor, like I, I, I don't, I don't know if someone's a good doctor. I've never studied medicine, but you know, I guess they, uh, they seem nice. <laughs> and well, certainly being nice isn't the standard we want people yeah. picking their doctor. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot there, a lot of layers of what you just said. And we, when I started out, I started the practice, I was 29 years old mm-hmm. and I looked like I was 20 years old and uh-huh. people would set they, I, I didn't sound the same as I do now and, I, and they would set a meeting and they would come in and they would start laughing at me they go you're going to be my lawyer yeah, like, yeah. How, how old are you right, how, how long have you been doing this <laughs> and I had been doing it like five years yeah and, I, like, and they're like well I've been with this other guy he's been doing it 30 years and finally I figured out like would you rather have a guy who sucked for 30 years or mm-hmm. somebody who's been good for five yeah that, that usually would like like Josh Allen he hasn't been playing too long he's pretty right. good but he's awesome yeah. right, right. <laughs> yeah well, it's also people's... I don't get that complaint anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I know, same with the gray hair. They trust yeah. you, the grays. <laughs> it's people's perception. Like, they sometimes have this thought that an attorney should be very loud and aggressive mm-hmm. and come full force. And, I yeah, mean, and that, that doesn't mean anything necessarily. Right. Yeah. Right. That was That's, something that I struggled yeah. with, too. I'm, I'm not the, the... And I suspect that you're not the guy who's in the courtroom screaming at the top of your lungs. <laughs> you're not wearing a $3,000 suit. Uh, like Mr. Fl- Fancy New York City criminal defense attorney, right? right. Yeah. Uh, and people would say, well, you're not this and you're not that. And there's some really great lawyers in town, super well-dressed, fancy car, the whole, just like right out of central casting, right? Yeah. That was never me. And so they meet with those people, they meet with me, like, okay, they do it their way, I do it my way, but, and here's my last hundred results. Like, right. let's put them on the table and say, right. They don't even know what their results are because they don't even keep track. Right. Um, it's a different thing. I think the other thing in private practice is even really good lawyers are not great for every case. Mm-hmm. You have, it's like a matchup sometimes mm-hmm. where you're good with the client and you're good with a particular fact pattern. And when you're in private practice, you can say, I really want that case. I know I can do a great job on that case. Or I really don't want that case. And you're going to be better off served to go see this other attorney. And by actually, a, even though, we need money to stay in business and all that stuff. By not having a case that's not appropriate for you, it makes the whole office run smoother. And it's, I'm sure for you, one bad case takes up half your time. Yeah. And something that I think a lot of public defenders struggle with initially is when it's just not working with a client. And I remember the first time one of my clients wanted a new lawyer, I was sort of devastated, like I had failed them. But now it's you know, any time a client seems displeased with me, I immediately pivot to the conversation about, like, do you want me to ask the judge to give you a new lawyer? And I make it very clear to my clients that it's, it's no hard feelings. You know, if me and you don't get along and this is going to be a case that's going somewhere, that's going to be very detrimental to your case and to your life. And I would much rather have my client have someone else that it's going to work with than preserve my ego by me sticking out a case where it's not working well and uh, it's you know, I, I have no qualms and I, I no longer feel any 
bad or shame or anything about going to a judge and saying, judge, there's a breakdown in communication. Please give this client a new lawyer. What's their general response when you say that? Um, response to? From the you client. Want, you want me to get you a new lawyer? I'm, oh. I'm guessing it's 50-50. Yeah, yeah. Speculating. It, it depends. Some, some clients, especially if there's been a longer relationship or like, you know, they'll immediately like back down and be like, no, I actually really like you and I can see you're doing a lot of work in my case. And they sort of know that it's, you know, you're just spinning a wheel when you ask for a new lawyer. Um, some of them want to talk through it. And there's times where I'll have very like flushed out conversations about like, here's the pros, you know. Uh, recently, I had a client who like just wanted a little more time before he had to take that plea that involved stepping into prison. And, um, you know, so he, he sort of understood that, okay, well, you know, maybe I can get those couple more months just by hiring a new lawyer. And I was like, okay, then we'll tell the judge that this isn't working and we'll get you a new lawyer. And, you know, I'm sure he got the results he was looking for with a new lawyer. Sometimes, you know, it's not going well and the client says, yes, please get me a new lawyer as soon as possible. And I say, great, we'll get you someone that you can work with. Can I jump in real quick? Yeah. I think we've both seen, I mean, like I get a lot of like, you know, attorneys are really busy and like can't talk for long with clients all the time. So I get a lot of the phone calls. So-and-so's not answering. I'm frustrated. I want a new lawyer. I hate this person, blah, blah, blah. So if they get assigned a new lawyer, they can't get a legal aid lawyer. They have to get a, a panel, you know, assigned counsel who is literally like spinning the wheel like like you did in your you know previous work. And so it's like, you know, you don't know who you're going to get. And um, I, I think if I can share, like Nick had a client fire. We call it like fire. You know, you fire yeah. your attorney. We had a client fire Nick and he talked to the new attorney, the panel attorney, didn't like him and wanted to come back to Nick. Nick's like, well, you can't. Does it work like that? No. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, I'm not your lawyer anymore. Like, I'm not advising you on anything. Yeah. I think with like, if I can bring in social work real quick, um, I, I think I get to know a lot of our clients more than the attorneys do. One, we have lower caseloads. Two, we're like just, well, you know, more trained to like talk to and listen to clients. And so they feel more comfortable. Um, and when they say I want a new lawyer and I tell them like, well, here's like I weigh out pros and cons too. I'm like, you know, you don't talk to your attorney often, but you have me. If you get assigned a new attorney from a panel, they might not have and probably won't have a social worker and the time and resources. Um, like we have investigators, we have social workers, we have you know, attorneys in different fields to support. And like this new attorney might not have that. And that kind of dissuades a lot of people from leaving legal aid and firing their attorney. Um, I've had a client say like, no, I don't like so-and-so, but I like you. So the case is going to be dismissed in like three months. I'll just stick it out. Um, and so I think that's a lot of part of it too, is like, you don't want to just say, you want to respect their wishes, but yeah. I want to make sure they understand like the severity of what they do. Yeah. And you guys cannot be on the same case, right? No. I mean, well, because you were in Brooklyn at one point, yeah, right? So, so I you were in the same department. I worked, um, so I didn't work for legal aid. I worked for um, a supervised release, which is kind of like, okay. know, pro not probation, but kind of like probation. Um, it's, you know, an alternative to a client being detained while awaiting trial. Okay. Um, so they're in the community. And we just kind of like checked in on them and made sure they were like in contact with us. But because you're married, you're not allowed to be on the Yeah, so I like yeah. saw his name, but like if he was working arraignments and I was the next person, social worker, to get a case, they wouldn't give me his case. You right. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I just, you know, it, I, I don't know about the rules, right? I, I just don't think it would be Ethic. ethical. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking if, you know, if 
a random social worker in my case, on a case, you know, gives me something that I don't think is good and needs completely redone. I need to be able to say, this isn't good. Please yeah. redo it. And am I really going to say that to my wife? Right. No, in the kitchen. Like, hey, by the way, your report didn't like it. <laughs> didn't yeah. redo it. So, yeah. Um, but as I said, we're in different boroughs right now. So we, we would never yeah. have a case together. It's not even possible. Well, it is possible. If a client gets arrested in Brooklyn and Manhattan. Well, true. But you wouldn't be working on I wouldn't. Case. I wouldn't accept it. Yeah. yeah. Um, you brought up uh, uh, you brought up the idea about how you don't need to be the most it's okay to be like a more mild-mannered attorney and I, I certainly um, appreciate that because I think at least in my social and everyday life and most of my colleagues would tell you I'm a pretty laid-back and mild-mannered person and I'm not particularly loud but um, I, th- I think it's still important and sometimes for those people it's even more effective when you have the ability to dial it up when you need to and um, Katie had you want to tell the story about the first time you saw me in Ohio? And <gasps> that was so cool. What the, yes. The, um, the, the shock value it brought yeah, you? Yeah. So, like, I mean, I met Nick 12 years ago, and he's always been, like, stoic and reserved. <laughs> and, like, we had, like, the Nick Wiltsy glare. He'd just stare at you. Um, and, you know, obviously, like, he's social. Um, yeah. And I saw him in his, I don't know if it was my first trial seeing him. And um, I saw him up there, and I was just, like, I mean, I'm not going to yell because there's a mic in front of me, but he stood up and, like, literally fist pound on the table with an objection <laughs> to, like, something the DA was saying. And I was like, it I must like, have been shocking. a hefty reason oh, to, like, Oh, react. yeah. And he won. <laughs> thankfully, he won that trial. And I, like, turned to his office mate sitting next to me, like, is that my boyfriend? Like, is that Nick Is up he going to get in trouble for yelling he, at Oh, the yeah. Judge? <laughs> I was literally like, Steve, is he going to get in trouble for yelling that loud in court? Because I've never seen him yell this loud. Yeah. And, like, it was a rightful reason to object to whatever they were saying. But... Um, it was really cool to see him, you know, I like, I heard him practice his, like all of his openings and closings and whatever, but it was really cool to see the way that he was like, um, like an, like an actor up there. <laughs> like, I'm like, that's not Nick every day. Like that is like a zealous advocate up there. Who's like fighting for the hell of his client, right. you know, but it's not the way he acts completely. No. It just went appropriate. Absolutely. Yeah. And like, so. that's like the tile dilated up. Like you said, I think that's like a skill that most people don't have. And it, I think it's even more powerful because the judges see you every day, like pretty at one baseline. And then when they see you turn it up, that's like a good reason to turn it up. Yeah. It was really cool seeing him. And I think that's something you're going to teach your kids though, when you're teaching. So I was probably the opposite of that. Right. So I'm a pretty quiet person, generally speaking. Um, I played sports, like whatever, but you go to and you see these lawyers who are top level prosecutors who are and I tried to overdo that mm-hmm. when I was a young lawyer you know you're trying to be what other people are you see these yeah. lawyers who you they're, they're just sharks right mm-hmm. and and Kenny and I are really close and, and she's a boss I, I had who really helped me with my trial skills she's a wonderful trial lawyer and very aggressive very whatever and she said you can't be me you can't you got to be yourself yeah. and and that was all she ever did was really talking just calm down you can't do it like the other guy does it you're from the country you got to talk to people they're going to believe you yeah because you do it your own way and there's yeah you have to have the ability to do it but you can't always be doing it right you gotta be genuine right yeah, yeah. and and everybody gets that like make common sense mm-hmm. be yourself that's the uh, kind of the life cycle of a lawyer right yeah. is knowing when to turn it up turn it down yeah when to do it so people never learn how to play the how to play the cards yeah um it's just one final question i have for the two of you bob and brie 
um, since just circling back to the discussion about social work and the law and the fit for social workers and public defender offices and possibly more uh, large scope, um, uh, have you ever considered having a social worker on your staff here and how that might fit into your practice? So, so Abby uh, worked here for like six years, wonderful employee, one of my first employees. She's, she went back to school to be a social worker, and some of the great conversations we had is she also was in the trenches here. I mean, she did everything. She answered mm-hmm. phone. She did everything. She had a job. great understanding of you know, everything, how everything she, works. Every, she knows yeah. how a law yeah. office works. She mm-hmm. really knows, and she really wants to be a social worker, and she's very passionate about it for all of the right reasons, mm-hmm. and, and we support her 100% in doing that. But we had some, once she decided to go back to school, she was still working here. And you think about that's where some of those thoughts have come from, the client experience and the, all the other stuff. But yeah, I think there is that as a, as a small law firm, and, and it's exactly what, what you're saying. Maybe there are more resources at the public defender's office. Um, we have four lawyers. We have a number of staff. Where is the sweet spot where you bring a social worker into a private law firm? Mm-hmm. Um, some, but I think we're kind of using – non-trained professionals halfway in that role and is there also the an opportunity for someone like you to come to a law office oh you want to hire me (laughs) contract but to to talk to the people who are dealing attorneys and non-attorneys in a way of some things to think about because not all law firm we're a long way from all law firms hiring a social worker yeah right Mm -hmm. But yes, I think it would be helpful in certain circumstances, whether it's a criminal case or a personal injury case. Mm -hmm. I mean, earlier I said personal injury because a lot of those times people's lives are altered. Yeah, it's like a domino effect where things just continue to shift, um, which can be the same for criminal depending on what's going on. But it's not only the client, it's also the family that's involved. It's affects and impacts more than just the client. Yes. So because it's not an isolated person in an isolated bubble for an isolated incident. It like has so the the reaches of the like how it affects it. Like I talk to so many parents, so many siblings. Like we reach out, social workers reach out to collaterals to get like, you know, tell me about this client. Tell me about what happened, what it's like growing up, what what they experienced. Like, to, like a give, reference. Yeah, almost. to give context. And also to like reach out to support. Like if a client's at Rikers, like, hey mom, like so-and-so really misses you and like here's what he's going through and and you know just to like be that support for the family too which i think is like part of our role so i have i have one last question for Mm kind of nick i think Mm -hmm. but the both of you so i worked at a county too my whole law practice uh not law practice when i was a da was in monroe county knew all the judges knew all the players knew all the deputy knew everything you go into private practice now all of a sudden you're going all over new york state Mm -hmm. do you ever so you understand where you work. You've worked in uh, Brooklyn the whole six years? Yes. You're really dialed into Brooklyn. Do you ever have that desire to see what it's like, what we call it country justice, like to go to a more rural area? So you go to Yates County, New York, or Wyoming County, New York, there's one judge. Well, because Nick grew up in Jamestown, too. Right. So that's there, kind and of- it's um, the different venues are different, but it's the same law and it's the same skills. And I don't, I don't know if you've ever thought about anything like that. Yeah, it's not something that I'm sort of like eager to try, but um, I certainly appreciate how different it must be. You know, as you said, it's the it's the same laws that are. You know, maybe there's some special local laws that apply, but in general, the crimes my clients are being charged with are the same that your clients are being charged with up here. But it's definitely different. Like I I imagine that um, you know 
in New York City, there's probably generally um, a lot more. Um, you know, if someone has a gun, I think it's taken very, very seriously in New York City, where um, in more rural parts, it's, it can be looked at as sort of, you know, like people own guns and maybe they didn't license it correctly, but we understand that it's more of a part of a culture down here. Whereas like every single person that's caught with a gun in New York City, it's looked at like, wow, like you must be in a gang. You must have that gun because you want to shoot people. There's a stereotype associated yeah, with it. A- a- yeah. Absolutely. But um, in terms of like trying... You know, I, I, I don't feel like a great poll to go try um, practicing in a more rural area. Um, I'm sort of, like, comfortable knowing my judges and the people I work with and whatnot. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I have thought about, like, how different that must be, those places where it's sort of one judge and it's that judge's kingdom or queendom, and they're going to they're gonna do what they want to do. So the big thing for me was you kind of know what the offers are going to be or what they should be, right? Yeah. You have a sense mm-hmm. of somebody gives you an offer, you say – that's fair. That's good. That's horrible. Yeah, the, the, the worth of a case, we right. call it. Yeah. You know, like, like, like you said, you can expect two and two on a gun case. Sure. Or what a judge gonna, is going to yeah. accept and not accept. Yeah. And we had that in Monroe. Mm-hmm. And then you go out in the outlying counties in here, it's actually, so there's not a lot of violent felonies in the rural areas. And when they get one, they're going to take it real serious. Uh-huh. And you're, what you're used to being able to get uh, six and five on, your, your offer's five years in prison and you're like what are you talking about yeah like come on yeah 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 i I imagine you must see and also like you know different judges and different da's you know every da can take a vastly different approach to a case also like sometimes he talks about like oh i'm in front of this judge but like we'll we'll be in front of another judge and who like have a different you know view on it or they came from legal aid so like they know whatever but i i imagine like in Wyoming County or wherever has like one judge, you're like, well, this client's not going to get a good outcome, you know? Right. Yeah. Or you got to go to trial, maybe do like, you got to switch yeah. up your approach. Yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And because, I mean, it's even just like comparing our practices in Brooklyn versus Manhattan. Oh, it's so different. You know, there, there's cases that, you know, Katie's working on, you know, that they brought on a social worker and they're like begging for some non-jail, non-jail sentence, for like yeah. they're begging for a felony probation and like for this like for like a drug case whereas in Brooklyn they wouldn't even like prosecute that or they'd offer the guy like a non-criminal disposition and community service yeah. so i mean just when you think about those differences across the river. across the Manhattan River yeah. it's 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 a big state and things can be very different depending on where you commit a crime yeah so, so Jerry one of the lawyers here he just did a, a trial on a Rob one Berg one against the elected district attorney in Elmira. <laughs> I mean, Ouch. the rural counties, they got maybe yeah. three, four, ten. Um, Jim Ritz is in Ontario County. He does a lot of trials. He's the elected DA. Yeah. I can't imagine the elected DA in Manhattan is doing many trials. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. No. It's, uh, yeah. And what we, we talked about this on the last podcast, to go against an elected district attorney, they campaigned in the community. They're in the newspaper every yeah. day yeah. to go in there and beat the elected DA in his home county is almost impossible. Yeah. Yeah. And and Jerry did it, which was like, and he doesn't even know how lucky he is. Yeah, you know? yeah that's a, an amazing feat to, yeah. Um, but I can't yeah. imagine, has, do any elected DAs in the city ever uh, do trials? I, I think that they will, if there's like a really high profile case, they might participate. And by participate, I mean, maybe they'll sit at the table or come in here and there. But you know, I, I've never seen Eric Gonzalez is the DA of where I've never seen him in the courthouse. It's they're really much more political positions. And, 
you know, being head of a government agency type positions. You know, they're, they're overseeing hundreds, if not thousands of employees. That's really what those positions are more all about. And um, in Manhattan, um, last year, a, a former, well, she still currently works at Legal Aid in Manhattan with me, but she ran for DA. Um, she lost, unfortunately, um, to Bragg. Elvin Bragg, yeah. But, um, but it, you know, coming like a public defender running for a DA office is like the progressive DA. Um, and so she, I mean, she still tries and she is amazing. Um, but I think I've never seen, you know, Alvin talked about like all these new policies are going to implement in Manhattan and New York County, but um, nothing's changed. So Nick ever consider being a prosecutor? No. <laughs> no, period. <laughs> um, no, no, that's not something that I like getting people out of jail, not putting them in. Well, that's why I quit being a prosecutor was because I got sick of putting them in. Uh, but I didn't know that I would, I wasn't sure how far I would go in my criminal defense career. Originally, I, I had been locking people up yeah. and, you know, I knew I could defense the people, but very quickly I'm like, oh yeah, I can do this. How, this how have, for the both of you, like, um, how do you defend guilty people? Mm. <laughs> Question mark. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It, it, it's. <laughs> I almost don't know how to answer the question because it's not. It's not something that weighs on me ethically in any capacity. It's. I have a client. My job is to help this client as much as possible, and that is what it is. It's, you know, it's when I when I walk into a courtroom, there's a, a whole bunch of people in there that care about putting my client in jail, and I'm the only one who cares about getting them out of jail, and it's. You know, I, I think that the only way I can contextualize it is if if you meet someone and that person is your entry to a case and you're hearing their story and you're spending your time with them and you're hearing their point of view, that person in my case is the defendant and maybe they're guilty, maybe they're not, but that's the person I have a relationship with. That's the person I want to help. And I, I've never had like a, oh, God, like if I get this person, it, no, it's, it's, this is my client. I'm going to do everything I can for them, and I'm not going to feel bad about it at all. So I think you have to believe in the system, right? Mm -hmm. You have to believe in the system, which I do. And I think everybody deserves to be treated fairly. I think we all, and if you, if you did a really bad thing and they can prove that you did a really bad thing, then, then the judge is going to do the judge's job. But... They deserve representation. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and I don't know. I think if you asked 100 lawyers that, you'd get 100 different answers. Mm -hmm. But yeah. uh, to me, and maybe Nick would take a different approach, I've represented innocent people, truly mm -hmm. dead innocent people. Mm -hmm. And that is the craziest thing you will ever do. A lot of the people that we represent are not innocent. Um, a lot of the people are not guilty. A lot of the people are guilty. And I think you know, the question is, do you approach it the same way? not approach it the same way do you think about it differently hopefully not but I mean hard, hard not to well when you have yeah. a, a young guy who's 20 years old and you're like I have evidence right here this mm -hmm. guy is straight up innocent yeah not not he did something stupid not there's an argument not there's a defense like this didn't happen yeah that's I, I don't know if you've had that experience but that's a pressure there is no one on this earth who feels pressure like that. Maybe guys in the military, mm -hmm. maybe uh, the president of the United States going to drop a bomb, but this is this is serious stuff. Yeah. That's that's the scariest feeling having a, a completely innocent client and knowing it. Yeah.
It's like you and surgeons, like anything that you m accidentally do could impact their life tremendously. Yes. <laughs> sir. Well, yes. And you're always worried so about much power. Yes. the judge or the DA doing something that you can't stop, that somebody gets completely screwed. Yeah. Uh, and that was always a fear for me. And I don't think we've had that. I mean, we've had people go to jail for a long time, not too many of them. I mean, we can go back to the stats. We've got a lot of people out of jail, but we've never seen that horrible thing, the one you see on TV. The, we, just, we just represented a guy, he, he was in jail. Um, another crazy scenario, 16 and a half years. Mm -hmm. He wrote like 14, 440 motions. He was probably innocent. Mm -hmm got out of jail on his 14th 440 motion for lack of evidence. He comes to us. I mean, there was another suspect. There, suspect number one existed for two years. And so we get this case, Greg and I, and um, his, his son's in law enforcement. I mean, it's got all the pieces of whatever. They offer the guy a man to with time served. Um, and what do you tell the guy? I'm like, look, we got a 99% chance of winning this trial. Like, if we don't win this trial, we're, we're bad lawyers. If we don't win this trial, we didn't do our job. But he already lost once, and he sat in the jail for 16 years, and he's out, and all he got to say is the words. He's like, I'll say the words. Like, and that's not our choice. That's mm -hmm. not, like, we don't go to jail. Yeah. That's his choice, and you got to bring it to him, and he's got to make that decision with his family. Mm -hmm. And we had meetings for hours and hours about what he was going to do. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, that was a crazy another war story. But Yeah scary and it's it, it's I think it's hard like removing our, us from like it's their life their sentencing their possible future or lack of if they get sentenced and it's hard to like it's, it's their their self-determination to make the decisions they want to make and it's not on us they're gonna have a life after us they had a life before us we are the ones helping them go through this but um I have to remember that's an obstacle for me, like to remove myself. Like mm -hmm. I am just another person in their life. Probably, you know, there's gonna be a million more social workers after me. Right, but there are also some of those people that you will have impacted oh, that you yes. will never forget. Yes, oh, so, I hope so. Yeah, yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. With you, a hundred percent. Yeah. I don't know, Nick. Your opinion. the other thing. So there's an offer made. This is another scenario that we come across all the time, right? And we don't go to jail. We don't take the offer. We don't become a criminal. And I tell the people, this is, I know quite a bit about the system. This is what I would do if I was in your shoes. I don't know how you talk to people about offers. I mean, some offers, the proof is overwhelming. It's a good offer. You should take it, right? That's part of your job is to advise your client about whether or not to accept an offer. And then there's the other case. They're like, oh, I don't know. It's a pretty close call. Like you could go, uh, Greg, we were just talking to Greg today, and it's, it's an offer if you do something, you get probation, or you could do six, you could, take six weekends in jail and not get probation. I was like, eh, I don't know, it's kind of like an even trade. And I don't know. Yeah. he's like, what, what, what should we tell him? Like, tell him to do what they want to do. Yeah, <laughs> it's up to him. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because sometimes the range of outcomes can be so drastic that it's really, like I, I have a case that it's, it's an open case right now where it, it, it's a gun case. It's a first Ross gun case. So if we keep turning down all offers, go to trial and lose, the minimum is three and a half years jail, up to 15. Um, they made a pre-indictment offer of felony probation. So he'd have a felony record the rest of his life, but he'd do probation and wouldn't go to jail. But also, I have a very strong speedy trial motion that should win as long as the judge follows the law. 
but I can't file that motion until after the case is indicted. So I'm having this pre-indictment conversation with the client about like, well, you can take this sure thing of probation or you can wait to get indicted and I can file this motion, which if we win, you beat the case. If you lose, if we lose the motion, the offer's gone. And now we're talking about begging for two years instead of three and a half or going to trial. And, and you don't know who your judge is going to be. Exactly. And some, some judges are going to be really good. Some are going to try to find an exception. Exactly. And it's all this to say these, these are hard decisions and... Uh, on that case, I really felt a lot of stress about like, well, what am I going to tell the client to do? But at the end of the day, like it's all we can do is give advice and you know, the, the client made his decision and we'll see where the case goes. But it's um, it's it's like you said, it's you know, it's I'm not the one that has to do five years of felony probation. I'm not the one that possibly has to go to jail. It's the client and we can give the best advice we can. But at the end of the day, it's squarely their decision. And it's part of your job to make sure you give the good advice. Exactly. Yeah. And then when, yes. when the bad thing happens, they yell at you. Yeah. <laughs> Which he is actually, like, really good at, um, like, blocking out those screamings at you. Yeah, I, like, cry. And he just, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> the cry. Yeah. They, they got to yell at someone. I'm like, they hate me. <laughs> I think, I mean, we, we got a bunch yeah, of Yeah, we're time good. It was, I think. Thanks so much. Oh, I can talk to you guys forever. Yes. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful to have Thanks you for having us on. Yeah. This was awesome.